study of providence is a fascinating uh, study. And it is also a faith-building study. And uh, we have alluded to providence at times in our Bible classes and various uh, lessons, but this morning I want to devote uh, an entire lesson to what truly will not be an exhaustive study of providence, uh, because I don't believe there's any way to fully exhaust every detail of providence, because I think as we go forward in the lesson today, you will see that there are certain things about providence, details about which we uh, cannot know. But there are some things we can know, and the things that we can know about the divine providence uh, of our almighty God, those things are most reassuring and most comforting. And so as we look at an overview of, of the study of providence, I want to look at it this morning from uh, these perspectives, with these major points. I want us, first of all, to see the promise of providence, that it is a divine promise. And that is a very important point, and I think the one with which we should logically begin. Then I want to move to the principle involved in providence. That is, how is it that God, in his providence, works in our lives? Then I want to look at some people who were the beneficiaries in Scripture of his providence, about which there can be no doubt that they benefited from God's providence. Then I want to look at the power of providence, especially through prayer and the power that is released through the providence of God as we as his children approach him in confidence and in full assurance that he will answer in accordance with his will as we approach him in prayer. But finally, and very briefly, to look at the perversions of providence. Some things that we need to stay away from in our thinking concerning the providence of Almighty God. Now, there's a great deal about providence in the Word of God, no question about it, but the Word itself is not even there. Interesting, isn't it? Now, in Acts 24 and verse uh, 2, you do have the word providence used in some translations, the King James, uh, for example. But even though the word providence is used there, it has nothing to do with the providence of God. If you look at that verse, you remember we've just studied the book of Acts. Paul is before Felix, and you remember when Tertullus, that orator, came down with the Jews to accuse Paul? And uh, he began by uh, complimenting uh, Felix. Tertullus, verse 2 of Acts 24, began his accusation saying, seeing that through you, talking to Felix now, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. The New King James says, the King James says providence. So there's the word providence in the King James, but it has nothing to do with divine providence. He's talking about the provision that Felix had made for the nation and that under his oversight or his, uh, his governing authority, things had gone well. And there's one other time when this same word that's translated providence or foresight there in Acts 24.2 is also used. Proinoia is the word, and it literally means the idea of forethought. But in Romans 13 and verse uh, 14, the admonition there from the Apostle Paul to us, to the Roman Christians, and thus to Christians for all time, is this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, there's the word again, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In other words, don't make provision, don't provide for the flesh or fleshly lust. But that's the only two times we find 
the word used and neither reference has anything to do with the providence of God. But though the word is not there in scripture in reference to the providence of God, the concept permeates the word of God from Old Testament to New. And we need to fully appreciate the providence of God in our lives. First of all, it's promise. If you'll look with me at a very familiar text in Matthew chapter 6, in the context there of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ himself. In verse 25 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he illustrates it this way. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God's going to feed you, in other words. Then he adds, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And here's his point. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. In other words, those who are not followers of God. They're concerned about these things. They're overly anxious about these things. They're worried about these things. But not you. You should not be that way. Why? Because your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But here's the key verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. And then another, therefore, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's the promise of providence. There's no question about it. The providence of care. The promise of care. And we're going to see that that care in today's world, in this the final dispensation of time, that promise is fulfilled through providence, not through miracle. Not through miracle. And that leads us to the second point, principle. The principle by which God fulfills his promise. The promise that is absolutely sure and certain. You can count on it because it came from deity. God says, I will take care of my own who take care of me. In other words, those who prioritize as they should, those who put the kingdom of God first, you don't have to worry about these other things. I'll take care of those things. doesn't mean that we're not to make effort to make sure that we provide for our own. In fact, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy that the one who will not care for his own has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. So we're obviously to make the effort to provide for our own, but we do so with the full assurance that God will bless those efforts. The Lord's Prayer, as it is often called, which is really more properly the model prayer in this same Sermon on the Mount, give us this day our daily bread, is not a plea for God to rain down wrapped loaves of bread from heaven for us. No, it's a prayer to bless what? our efforts, but that's still God providing. That's still God providing. As our efforts are blessed, as we do our part, God has promised to do his part, but he does not do it miraculously. Now, yes, there was a time 
when the miraculous element was involved in God's dealings with man. But that time has come and gone, despite the argument to the contrary by tragically so many in the religious world today. But the principle of God's providence and his activity in our lives through that providence is a principle of non-miraculous intervention through the laws that he has established. And he intervenes today not in front of the curtain, as it were, as he once did when he operated in the miraculous realm. He operates today and deals with and provides for his people behind the curtain, if you will. In other words, he has assured us that he's operating, but he does it, he does it through law, established law, and not through the miraculous. Is that something that should shock us or be uh, revolutionary to us in terms of something we've never seen in Scripture, even when the miraculous element was still in effect? No, because we see that for a period of time, and in the lives of some of the people about whom we'll speak in just a moment, there was God's intervention miraculously at times, but at the same time, in the lives of some of those same people, there was God's intervention through providence, behind the curtain as well as in front of the curtain. The point is, the point in time was reached when that which is complete or whole, the Word of God had come, when God stopped operating in front of the curtain and operated only behind the curtain. But in the life of various ones, we see God's providence as well as the miraculous. And that brings us to the people whom we could cite and give as examples of that very phenomenon. What about Joseph? Joseph was a person in whose life God operated both miraculously at times and non-miraculously at times and provided for Joseph and his family through raising him to power in the land of Egypt into which he had been sold by his jealous brothers. And in that rise to power, we see that rise to power punctuated by the miraculous at times where Joseph interpreted uh, dreams of the baker and the butler and so forth and enabled him to gain the favor of Pharaoh and become ultimately second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. We see that that rise to power punctuated by the miraculous, but we also see it very clearly punctuated by the non-miraculous and the providence that ultimately led Joseph to say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, don't be too hard on yourselves. God has brought this about in order that I might save you. And there's no denial of that anywhere in that account that Joseph was wrong about his assessment of it, is there? And so, the miraculous was involved? Yes. Because it was needed to prove to Pharaoh, for one, that Joseph was a unique individual. The miracles in the New Testament were needed to confirm that those who preached the word of God before it was in its written form were unique individuals. That is, that what they said was from God. I've mentioned before that Paul or someone else might come into a new area, preach the gospel of Christ, and people would say, why should I listen to you? But when he could confirm that preaching and others could confirm that preaching by miraculous gifts of the Spirit, then it proved them to be who they claimed to be. Do we need to still do that today? 
Not in the same way we do it with this. We do it with the Word of God. Many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, remember, which are not what? Written in this book, but these are what? Written that, in order that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. John makes it clear they're written to produce faith. And if this book proves itself to be inspired, and it does, then when I read of a miracle here, I can believe in that miracle that occurred. And I should. And I don't need to see it being performed today. I need to read about it and realize that this book furnishes me, just as Paul said it does, to every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That, in order that again, the man of God may be what? Complete. Furnished completely to every good work. This book claims for itself to be all-sufficient. And it is all-sufficient because it is the culmination of what God had planned all along, even back in Joseph's time and before, and that is to bring us to a point in time where we have his completed revelation. And so the two lines, if you will, that once ran together, miracles and providence, finally came together and one went away and only one continued. And the one that continued is God's providence, working behind the curtain rather than in front of the curtain. Joseph is an example of it. Esther is another of the people who provide us an example of God's wonderful providence. And you remember that great statement made by her cousin Mordecai at a very critical time in the Jews' history when he said, for if you remain completely silent at this time, the time when the Jews were threatened with extinction by the Persian Empire, if you remain silent, completely silent at this time, Mordecai had faith. He said, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place if you don't do it, somebody will. But you and your father's house will perish. And then he said, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Well, in the book of Esther, it's one of the greatest studies of providence that one could ever engage in. Clearly, the finger of God is in every, in every line, as it were. But where is the name of God in Esther? Where do you find God mentioned? Never do you find him mentioned in the entire book. And yet his finger is there directing through providence. Vashti refusing to appear before the king in a manner that would have been unbecoming of her. What happened to her? She was replaced. By whom? Esther. Where's the miracle involved in that replacement? It's not there. Yet that put Esther in a position to be able to appeal to the king. You can go on and on through the book of Esther. It's a study in itself. Here's Haman who was incensed by the fact that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, wouldn't bow down to him and began to plot to have him hanged. And to make a long story short, ultimately the gallows that he had built for Mordecai were the very ones used to hang Haman himself. And every event, clearly providential. Is every event in our lives today clearly providential? No. And that's one of the perversions we'll talk about 
in our final point in just a moment. But Joseph and Esther, and then we come to the New Testament and we see the Apostle Paul, and we've just finished studying the book of Acts, and his journey to Rome, and Julius, that centurion, who favored Paul and allowed him to go ashore on one occasion and spend time with his uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, his friends there. And then later on that journey, when the prisoners were about to escape and the soldiers said, let's kill them all, Julius stopped them by a miracle, right? No. No. There was a miraculous element involved because an angel of God appeared to Paul and told him not a single one of those 276 Souls would be lost in shipwreck. That was a miracle. But the providence of God, obviously, there as well. But it seems that even Paul did not always affirm that every event could be identified as the providence of God. Because you remember in the letter to Philemon, where he was recommending Onesimus to him after Onesimus had run away from his master, uh, Philemon, and uh, had come to Paul there at Rome where he was in prison and came into contact with Paul and Paul converted him and then sent him back to Philemon as a brother in Christ. Think about all of those circumstances that developed. And Onesimus had run away and now he's coming home to make things right with his master, but he's also making things right with his brother in Christ now, Philemon. What did Paul say about it when he wrote the letter to Philemon? Delivered by Onesimus himself. He said on one part of the, in one part of the letter, he said, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. In other words, maybe God has worked this out at least since Onesimus voluntarily left, God used that event through his providence. No miracle involved. So the promise is certain. The principle is non-miraculous intervention by God. Can I always identify when and where that intervention has occurred? No. Don't have to, though. Don't have to. I just need to believe in it and recognize that, indeed, God has promised me his providence if I prioritize as I should. And there are people in Scripture about whom we can clearly say providence was involved, but we can clearly say that about them because we have a divine interpreter in Scripture that makes that clear to us. We don't have that divine interpreter in our lives every time something happens, do we? To give us the assurance that the providence of God has been involved. But we believe in it, and we believe, fourthly, in its power that is released through our prayers offered to God in faith, with the full faith that he will answer in accordance with his will, and that he doesn't need to perform a miracle in order to do so, but that through his providence, just as he's proved to us from Scripture, he can work and will work in our lives in that same non-miraculous way, and we trust in him to do so. But that power, that power released through prayer is a power that we need to avail ourselves of through prayer in a way that leaves no doubt in our minds or in the mind of God that indeed we believe in his promise. In James chapter 1 and verse 5, 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But here's the key. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Therefore, it's imperative for us to avail ourselves of the power of God's providence through prayer that is faith-filled prayer offered in accordance with his will, offered by those who are doing his will because he who turns away his ear from hearing the law, the writer of old said, even his prayer is an abomination, Proverbs 28 and verse 9. Therefore, we need to make sure that we are in his will and that we're praying in his will and according to his will, nothing doubting with full assurance that his promise will be kept that the principle will not be violated through which he keeps that promise. We've seen examples of it in his people, and therefore that power is ours today as well. But finally, we need to make sure that we do not pervert God's providence, that we stay with the principle that is clearly revealed to us in Scripture in terms of how God works. Of course, one perversion of providence is that God's not involved, period in our lives. And that's basically the position of deism. A deist will, will affirm that a creator created this universe, including us, but that he has no interest in what's happened since that time. And we're on our own, and God could care less. Well, obviously, that's a perversion of providence because it basically denies the involvement of God. But then there's another perversion on the other end of that spectrum which says God is involved in everything that happens. If I get a parking place at a time when I shouldn't be able to easily find a parking place downtown, God surely must have done that. No. No, that's, that's going too far. I don't believe God personally, based on my study of Scripture, is interested in finding parking places for us. I think he has much better things to do, don't you? And yet, that is another perversion of it. And the Pentecostalism perversion is that, yes, through the direct operation of the Holy Spirit, that's how God's providence works. That's how his providence is affecting my life, by his Holy Spirit that directly operates upon my life. No. God operates through the Word in terms of, of uh, revealing his will to us, and he operates through his providence in terms of bringing his will about in our lives as we pray in accordance with that will and trust him to provide providentially. There's a passage with which we can close our brief overview of this great subject of providence that I think summarizes it beautifully, and it comes from the Old Testament writer of Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And it summarizes beautifully what we should do. And as we do it, the confidence that we can have in God's provision for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. 
That's a text all of us need to memorize and live by, really. It's an Old Testament passage, but it's an eternal principle, isn't it? Whether Old or New Testament uh, teaching, you'll find that permeating both covenants. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, really, in effect, in the text, a portion of it that we looked at? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Is that what you're doing this morning? Can you say that you're seeking first the kingdom of God? The only way you can say that is to say that you have believed in Jesus as the Christ, have acted upon that belief by repenting fully of your sins, have confessed him sweetly with your lips to be the Christ, the Son of God, and have been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, where the blood of Christ reaches you to cleanse you and to allow you to walk in newness of life. Believe that I am he or die in your sins. Belief is essential, no doubt about it. That's John 8, 24. But the same Lord said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Can't be faith alone if repentance will, is essential and without it will perish. So it has to be belief plus repentance at least, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there. The Lord said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And Jesus also said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Why? Because the Lord declared it so. And because in that burial in water, it is not the water but the blood of Christ that is applied from heaven itself, as it were, to cleanse the sinner from his sin and to allow him to rise to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 and 4. And as we rise to walk and as we continue that walk in the light, as he is in the light, confessing the sins that we will inevitably commit despite our best efforts, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness as we keep on walking. And there may be some here today who have not kept on walking, even though you began that walk in newness of life. For you, the admonition is come home. How? In repentance of any sin that's public in nature. If it's private, take care of it privately. But if you need to come home publicly and restore your influence and most importantly, your soul's salvation, the God of heaven stands, as it were, with open arms as pictured in the prodigal son parable, waiting to welcome you. And we do as well and are eager to pray with you and for you to the God who loves you and will care for you through his providence as he has promised to the faithful. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage you?